VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hang on a minute. Where's Slotty? He's not here again. Arthur, where's Slotty gone? Well, I don't know. He's been, he's been gone so long, I've virtually forgotten who he is. Anyone seen him? I don't know. Well, listen, before we, we get started, uh, this is an appeal from us at the Ruck. If you see a slightly off-the-wall figure, a medium height, slim build, sometimes looks like a mad professor, would you please contact Times Newspapers? Hi everyone, a new ruck this week. Season seems to be getting bigger and bigger. And so does our panel, but only in terms of status, not weight. We've got three stellar characters this week on the panel. Stella Barnes, Stella Delalio, and Stella Lowe. Uh, welcome to the ruck. The Lions uh, selections get nearer and nearer. England are the Six Nations champions, although not inspired by Eddie Jones with the men, but inspired by a really fine team led by Sarah Hunter with the women. Congratulations to them. Uh, Lawrence, I think um, just to wrap things up, we'll give you the final say on the somewhat bizarre process under which Eddie Jones was reviewed as England coach. I might take a sort of line out of the PRL sort of press handbook and say I'm not prepared to say anything of any interest or any significance uh, at all that might be important to the future development of rugby but uh, anyway that's uh, that's another matter I'm sure which we'll discuss very shortly uh, yes the, the review it was um, it was interesting isn't it I mean I, I think there's been a lot of uh, a lot of reasons given as to why England finished fifth um, one is that they they made their own hotel restrictions so severe that the players found it really tough I mean, surely you just go and change them, don't you? I mean, I'm not quite sure how you... So that, 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 that's one area. You know, there was obviously some some issues around coaches having to isolate. I mean, I think, you know, the single biggest issue going forward is that uh, this is this is the England rugby team and, uh, and you've got to surround yourself with the very best coaches. And I think Eddie Jones and the rest of the team need to ask themselves the question, have they, have they done that? You know, they've lost Steve Balthwick, a very big detail man. And they've replaced him with Matt Proudfoot. That's not a like-for-like like change in any way, shape, or form. And the England forwards were were off there, you know, off off the mark right from the start, really. So they, they, that needs addressing because their work at the breakdown uh, and their line-out work has gone backwards. Uh, and I think their, their scrum work, even though they've replaced him with the best scrummaging coach in the world, or certainly South Africa's scrummaging coach, that's gone backwards as well. The most penalised England scrum, or the, the most penalised scrum in the, in the tournament. Um, and as for England's attack, well, let's not even get on to that because 
you haven't got an attack if uh, if you haven't got um, a full pack that can uh, at least get parity. So I think there's there is but there is still questions for me around selection. You know, we've seen a, a an incredible round of Premiership games across the weekend, um, and some of the best players are nowhere near being picked for England. Uh, and there's some issues around the coaching as well, and I'm sure it's something that they're all going that hopefully will be addressed in the coming weeks. I have to say, I agree. Sometimes you, it's very rare to see a Premiership game where you don't see someone who should be in the England team. Alex, you laboured absolutely heroically last week for the Times in the absence of uh, Owen Slot and did it all yourself. Magnificent coverage, seriously. There was once a film called The Man Who Never Was. Could Darren Childs make a remake of that film? No, he's gone. Well, yes. He was in charge for 20 months. He did one television interview. He was criticised for virtually the entire time by the clubs for his lack of communication, never mind by the media who just tried to understand what was going on. He was the wrong appointment at the wrong time. As a man brought in from UK TV with a business background to effectively do a, a television deal, he was plunged into one crisis after another, Saracens, covid and, and as, as a lot of club owners who I, and, and, and sort of club executives who I spoke to last week said, he didn't have an understanding of the rugby dynamic, the, the politics. Um, and with a fair wind over the last 20 months, he might, have, he might have understood it more, but he didn't have that fair wind because of the crisis. And, and he, he lurched from one, one round of criticism to another. And uh, he jumped last week um, after hearing of plans for a vote of no confidence from the clubs. So there needs to be a fresh start. Uh, I think Nigel Melville has come in on the club's behest to be an executive chairman and, and they, they like the work he's doing. He obviously understands the rugby uh, landscape. Um, so the, the appointment of the new chief exec is critical for the direction of Premiership Rugby, which has, has had a really bad rap, both externally from us and internally from the clubs over the last couple of years. Thank you. And um, Stuart, we're not going to ask you to go political because we'll be bringing up Jeremy Corbyn within seconds if, if we do. So can I just ask you this? You are always, as a former fly half yourself, a student of the great fly halves. You started off praising Francois Trinduc in France, the man you uh, described as the the new Barry John. You then spent a lot of time in the camp of, uh, of Dan Carter, have we got a new uh, diamond now in the Barnes firmament with Dan Bigger? Because this weekend, you've praised him uh, to the skies. I praised him more for the manner in which he played than just being a fly half. It's the... I thought Bigger was heroic. I think we live in an age when people, first and foremost, think, what's in it for me? Even in team sports now, it's inevitable. You get paid a lot of money. You've got agents saying, think about yourself. Bigger put Northampton above anything. He was limping off. He'd taken a fair old battering. And, you know, he is in contention for the Lions. Um, Ugo Monia said on television, if that had been me, I'd have been straight off there without thinking. It was partly joking, but there was partly an element of truth. And that's how players think. Bigger put his mates first. And we don't see that very often. He's also playing extremely well. He played outstandingly for Wales in the Six Nations. He's playing very well for Northampton. But more than anything, it was his commitment to the cause, the fact that there was something of the socialist in the way he played, Steve. 
Excellent. I knew you'd get there in the end with the podcast. Can I just say one very quickly? Yeah. Darren Charles, has he gone to CVC? Yeah, one of his future roles is to be an advisor for CVC, yeah. Yes. So this bloke, CVC, who rugby has given lots of shares to because they're brilliant and they're going to make the game lots of money and save it from itself. They're so brilliant that they have appointed Darren Charles as one of their advisors. <laughs> no, I, I don't get that. It's, it leaves you a nice warm feeling, that, doesn't it? Steve, I know you promised Lawrence the last word on that review, but and you wrote a big piece on Sunday drawing parallels and connections between the RFU review and the Darren Charles departure. The one thing I'd say that, that connects the, the two, and, and part of it comes from the job that we all try and do, is that both organisations have developed a reputation for secrecy and a lack of transparency. That review, for example, w- w- was full of, what well, Eddie Jones, if he worked for any other organisation, would have termed excuses. But the, the, key, the key element in it is that advice was taken from a, uh, an anonymous panel and that panel will now remain in place to advise and scrutinise Eddie for the next two years. But nobody on it was prepared for their name to be made public, which I don't think is good enough for the RFU. And one of, one of Darren Child's biggest issues was the, the secrecy, this lack of communication, this lack of transparency around the organisation. And, and, and I know that there are businesses and there are confidential issues at stake, but they have to realise that, that this is the people's game and they've got to, they've got to bring people with them, both organisations, because the lack of transparency just builds distrust. Well spoken. Lawrence, um, just put rugby on a sort of human front. Whenever someone goes down in pain at this time of the season, so close to Alliance 2 and to the big games... There's always a sort of, uh, everyone goes silent. This, this week, two great men, two great players, Joe Launchbury and George North, uh, went down with what, what, what would look at the moment as serious injuries. I mean, that's a um, disaster for, 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 for the two clubs. You feel so sorry, don't you, for the two players? Well, listen, I feel sorry for any player who gets injured. You know, I was at the London Irish Harlequins game. Will Evans, you know, looks like he broke his leg. I think he's had an yeah. operation. So he went off with with a horrific injury. Um, as you say, George North, I think, uh, left, uh, left the stadium in a, in a boot, uh, one of those cast boots, which is never a good sign. Um, you know, it certainly won't be on the pitch anytime soon. And, and, and Joe Launchbury, who has had his own injury worries, I think has battled back magnificently, got himself in... Super form, you know, may or may not certainly have been in contention for a, for a place on the on the Lions tour. Was playing really well, Wasps talisman, and yeah, and, and he left the, um, the stadium on crutches and is having a scan this morning. So, uh, yeah, just just one, of, you know, it's it's terribly sad. Uh, you don't want to see any of those players injured, but particularly so close to uh, to a Lions tour. And these are the fine margins, you know, as Barnsley was talking about, Dan Bigger putting his body on the line. I think all these players do that week in, week out, um, and uh, you know, you just got to. Warren Gatlin, I'm sure, will be uh, crossing everything because there's still a few more weeks to go. Yes, the squad is announced what uh, you know on this May the sixth, but you know it's so important that uh, he gets as many people fit uh, and and well on that plane to South Africa. Sure, Stuart, uh, another um, enthusiastic. Uh, well, your, your match report of the East Midlands derby, very very enthusiastic, and it is so nice for a start to see these two teams playing with the edge that they've sort of lacked. What, what do you make of it? And are these two teams really on their way back to the top? Well, I think that's a bit early, Steve. Yeah. It was an East Midlands derby, and I think Leicester were probably the second best team, but because of the nature of the derby, um, they found something to come and come again. And I think Leicester actually have got a long way to go. They're rebuilding from source. For a few years, 
they've had coaches who have tried to build from sand as a foundation. At least Borthwick is going back to what he knows and what Leicester knows. But they have limitations at the moment and and there's a lack of class in some areas. Although I thought um, Mani Nandolo was fantastic when he came off the bench. As for Northampton, when Chris Boyd joined them, they were starting to play rugby like this very quickly. They then, again, they... They lost, and I think Lawrence will bear this out. They just forgot about the foundations of set piece ball, and without that, you can't play. Now, you know they shocked Leicester. They had uh, Paul Hill, who wasn't meant to start, caused problems for a Leicester scrum who have been demolishing everyone. And I, I can see Northampton finding their way into the top four, not winning it this year, but becoming serious contenders next year. I, I love the bigger Hutchinson, the powerful ten. The subtle 12 combination. Proctor comes in as a very good 13. They've got a lot going for them and they're enjoying their rugby. Of course, right now, the other thing that's going for Northampton's way, they're a hard ground team, you know. Mm. They really like a fast track. And um, they played some poor rugby, as Bigger said, in the second half, but they defended their way to victory there. Um, it, w- it was a really enjoyable game, I thought. It was exciting, entertaining a little bit scrappy in parts, but overall, it sort of it, it was perhaps the most intense game, uh, bar Friday night of a weekend um, that was that was high high on entertainment. Exeter question marks or small question marks began to arise. Lawrence, um, there weren't many question marks about their win over Bristol, were there? No, there certainly weren't. I mean, Bristol had a twelve point buffer at the, at the top of the table going into that clash. So sometimes when a team is is so far in front, maybe. The game lacks the the bite um, that that you'd get if it was a playoff game, obviously, um, or anything. But it it was an outstanding game of rugby. I think it was the outstanding game of rugby at the weekend in terms of the the, the skill and talent uh, that was on display. And and that was with both sides still missing one or two players as well. Bristol probably missing more. But uh, Exeter were, were almost back to their best. I thought that, well, it'll get talked about a lot in the next couple of weeks, but... The performances of, of uh, Simmons, Sam Simmons, uh, of Jack Knoll, fantastic to see him back. I mean, just, you know, just watching him play in that game made you realise what a quality player he is. And uh, and Slade as well. So I thought all three of them, if, if we're on Lions Watch, produced, you know, performances that would have uh, uh, warmed Warren Gatland for sure. But, you know, I think it was Chris Boyd I heard say over the weekend that uh, attack wins matches, but defence wins titles. Mm. And uh, his team defended heroically at Leicester. And I have to say, Exeter's defence against Bristol, a team that loved to go wide, wide. They turned them over at the breakdown. It was superbly refereed, which makes a huge difference as well, by Wayne Barnes, the best referee in the world by, by a country mile. Mm. Uh, and it was just a wonderful contest, you know. And I thought, uh, you know, Exeter just had that little bit extra, really. But, uh, I mean, it's fairly clear to me that these two teams will be, you know, if they're not competing in the Premiership final at the end of the season, then then someone's caused up a major upset. Alex, uh, Lawrence brought up Henry Slade there, a name that doesn't figure really much in, in the last Six Nations because he didn't really appear to have much chance to get in the game. Is it true that some, some of these players are looking far more confident and far more proficient with their clubs than they ever do with England? Because Slade looked like the Slade we all know and love on Friday. Yes, Jones, I mean, it, it, I guess it, it's a reprise of conversations that we had through the Six Nations about Henry Slade that, that mm. England were unable to, and, and have actually for large parts of his international career, been unable to to create um, an attacking situation that allows him 
to flourish in the way he flourishes for Exeter. The dynamic is is wrong with England, particularly when Manu Tuolangi's not playing. They just can't get it. They don't have the carriers. They don't have the platform often up front. And, and when he's playing for, for Exeter, he is a supreme outside centre. I mean, he's just one of the one of the most effective, but also just one of the most beautiful players to watch. Um, his his kicking is is perfect. His his lines of running, his his handling is delicate and, and accurate. I, I think he's a, a superb player. And England have just never managed to to get the best from him. Um, and particularly when Manu's not there, you end up either with Owen Farrell or Henry Slade being asked to run run direct ball carrying lines, and 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 it, it and it wastes his. His, his talent and it's, it's a frustration for England because we all know what a world-class player he is. Well, it's one of those classics that if you're not going to get the ball to him, then why pick him? It almost insults him and everyone else to suggest that, that the way England play, that the ball just doesn't get out to him anywhere near enough. But then again, you know, he is a senior player. You can't just sit there accumulating caps. You've got to go in there and say, guys, we've got to fundamentally change the way we play, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point in picking me? Well, that, that's part of the wider conversation. How many voices are there saying... This isn't working. That's that's a conversation we've had we'll a lot. Probably and, uh, we'll probably continue to have. Stuart, um, we're talking about Owen Farrell just just there, and the fact that for the Lions, uh, he may probably won't have Tulangi alongside him. In a test series like that, do you not need some physical people and people who are even more physical than, than, than Farrell? And if he does go on to us, I'm sure he will. Is is he, is he only going to be contending for ten? Because against the box, don't you need a different sort of player at 12? Are you asking me a question, Jonesy, or are you leading me to an answer? No, you can have answer whatever you want. Uh, listen, you may uh, get it right or you may get it wrong. Owen Farrell, since the World Cup semi-final, hasn't really merited playing for his country, let alone the Lions, on form. Um, but he does have credit in the bank with Gatland. He was competitive as hell in 2017. And he was a very bright young thing coming through in 2013. So he's going to go. But frankly... Uh, how do you use him? Steve, I agree. I, I think uh, with Demian Dialende lined up at 12, you have to fight fire with fire. And quite clearly, I, I have not even a moment's doubt with saying that Henshaw at 12 and Slade at 13 is your answer centre situation. Mm-hmm. Does Farrell play 10 with those two? No, he doesn't. Um, he's not playing well enough. You've got one of the three Celts. That's an argument for another day. You've got Bigger, Sexton or Russell, all have their supporters, all have their reasons. Um, I mean, if Farrell does go, he's going to be very lucky, I think. Because of the difference that, that Manu Tuolangi makes to the, to the makeup of a midfield, is he a special case that Warren Gatland should pick him in the squad, even though he won't yet have played coming back from his Achilles injury, but by the time the Lions go, he could easily be part of, of a sale title challenge? Do you have to put faith in him because of who he is. Yeah, you you do. But, you know, if you believe in faith, you go to church and find yourself very disappointed the world doesn't turn out like you think it should. He's just injured too often. Hard grounds of South Africa. At what stage do you say this is just a gamble too far? I know what you're saying, Alex. I think England have played their best rugby when he's been there, but he's not been there very often. If you look at the balance of of being disappointed because of another injury or you look at the balance of outstanding games, it tilts so far to the balance of disappointment that I think there comes a stage when you just think, if we could take 50 blokes on tour, fine, but you can't. I still go back to Eddie two, the two England performances under Eddie Jones, you know, Dublin away, 2019, I think it was, and, uh, and the World Cup semi-final. They would keep bagging on about them, but the, 
you know, the common denominator was Manu Tuolangi actually say move straight over the first line out and, you know, and set the tone straight away. And and so I think he, d- he does go just because, if I'm honest, I think it's a, 9, 10, 12, 13 is, is, is a real conundrum for the Lions. You know, it's, I think at 12 and 13, of course, there's lots of different options, but not like there are in, in a huge number of other positions. Um, mm. So I, I think it's a challenge and it's a challenge you could, that that the coaches have got to get right. And I don't think they're quite there yet because when you when you listen to Warren Gatland, he was saying, well, with my new coaching team that he's announced, you know, that there was quite a difference of opinion in terms of the squad and, and who should be in that squad. Nine is, a, is, a, is, a, is another selection, um, you know, the, which is a, we know South Africa, how strong they are um, in that position, but but the Lions is by no means nailed on who goes in uh, as a scrum half. I think with all the tens, including Farrell, they're all test match animals. Clearly, you know, there's a form ladder and Farrell's at the bottom of that form ladder, but he goes because he's a test match animal. And and Gatlin will believe that if he surrounds him with good players, he'll be able to, um, you know, shake him out of the poor form that he's been in over and over and over a number of months. But yeah, I, I, to answer your question, I think Tuolangi does go because it's a, it's a risk worth taking. You know, South Africa is not New Zealand or Australia. If you do have to replace players, and let's face it, on recent tours that that, that will happen. You know, it's it's an overnight flight, and you and you're straight into it. So, uh, yeah, Tuolangi goes for me. Can we have first uh, uh, Alex, and then Lawrence, and then Stuart? Uh, someone worth investing on as a real bolter. Someone possibly against the odds, but uh, may sneak into the Lions team. Well, it depends how you define that, because I. You know, would would Manu Tuolangi count as a bolter having not played for yes. seven months? Because I would be with Lawrence's camp. I'd pick him on on the expectation of him gaining fitness and form over the next few weeks. So he he would be mine. But but there's a definition of a bolter that certainly wouldn't include a player of his stature. But given the circumstances, I'd um, I'd certainly pick Manu in my in my 36. I think that narrow squad makes it really hard for for any real left field selections because there just isn't isn't room. Well, I think what people have to understand is that form is is an important criteria for selection and particularly Six Nations form is important, but it's not the only criteria. You know, this is going to be a tour like no other Lions tour has ever been like. You know, you've got to pick people who can really survive in this environment living in a in a bubble where you go and see a country but you're not actually allowed to see the country you know the constraints around this touring party will be like no other they may not even be allowed out their hotel for large chunks of time so other than to see the back of a bus the front of a bus the inside of a stadium barely the outside of the stadium and and then that's it and then the team room so you've got to pick people you've got to pick personalities you've got to pick characters you've got to pick people that don't get homesick after two or three weeks you know, this is a seven, eight, nine week stint, you know, longer than any tour that these players will be used to going away on. The modern day professional goes away on a two or three week tour these days. You know, suddenly they're on a nine week trip and it's going to be different. So I, I don't know, this guy's not a bolter, but, he, you know, you underestimate the the, uh, the basics of the game against South Africa at your peril. If you don't get this right, if you don't get the scrum and line out right, you, you, you have got no game against South Africa. And we know that they are strong at scrum and they are strong in the line out. So... For me, he's not playing international rugby at the moment by his own choice. But uh, Joe Marler has to go on the Lions tour. Uh, he's probably up there as one of the top five scrummagers in the world right now, uh, particularly at Loosehead. Uh, I think he is a character that that um, you know that has his own struggles, but actually, I think he would be good value for the Lions. Um, his destruction of London Irish's scrum won them the game. 
Marcus Smith grabbed the headlines, of course, and rightly so, um, for, for, for scoring that try. But, but Joe Marler is playing outstandingly well. Um, he's a great ball carrier, very strong defensively, and importantly, he's a really good scrummager. And I think he has to go for me. He, he is my Lions bolter. Very good one. Stuart? Can I have a bloke who's uh, a bolter not to go on tour, but to just, in the last few weeks, has just played his way as a, star, a certainty into the test team? We didn't have a clue about scrum half. We had what we thought were fading scrum halves and not good enough scrum halves. Since the last two rounds of the Six Nations, especially the England game, Conor Murray has found his form. He was very good for Munster against Leinster. He's got no opposition. So Conor Murray, from being a, if he gets his form back, he could be the number nine, has become my inked in number nine, one of the absolute certainties to start the Test Series now. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Alex, you were at Stonex Stadium yesterday. I thought it would be a lot closer than that, but obviously it wasn't. What sort of shape did, did Saracens and also Ealing Trail Finders, what shape were uh, they in? Yeah, so I, I thought it would be a, a little closer. And in the first, in the opening exchanges, um, Ealing won, I think, a free kick and two penalties off the Saracens scrum. And the Saracens starting front row was Jamie George, Vincent Cock, and Mako Vunapola. I thought, here we go. And then they just turned on the power. Saracens they every avenue that that Ealing tried to attack down they just they just ran into a wall of of defenders they it, it was a very Saracens like performance in defense just swarming uh, Ealing really giving nothing Owen Farrell was okay, played very well and he combined beautifully with Elliot Daly who was loving life outside center they got a they got into cruise mode really and p- pulled away from Ealing who scored a lovely try towards the end but it, the game was gone gone by then um, I thought it was a it was a mark in the sand from from Saracens, who you know who had been chasing chasing the league since losing that first game. They knew that if they beat Ealing at home, mm. they'd be straight back in the in the promotion race. And afterwards, Mark McCall talked of of Ealing as a as a mid table Premiership side in quality. I'm not. I think he was being generous there. He made that point largely because he was being asked about the Saracens Lions contingent, and he was arguing that that actually they are playing competitive rugby and. And they, if they get to the final, they'll have the two-legged playoff uh, compared to the the, the the Celtic players in the Rainbow Cup who aren't really playing any meaningful rugby. He was he was trying to argue the case for his players. They will be ready for the Lions tour, and and in that context, he put Ealing as a mid-table Premiership team. But I think they're they're some way short of that. I think teams like sure. Newcastle and, and Leicester and Northampton would argue quite strongly that that Ealing aren't that good. Just just on that, by the way, I think the. Uh... You know, Gatlin's already said that there's going to be some big names that will miss out on selection. Um, and I think he was looking more towards England than, than most other teams. Um, mm. you, can, you can pick one or two players who are out of form and know that, you know, in the right environment, you can, you can, you can bring them back to where they belong. But you can't pick too many players. And Eddie Jones has already made that mistake. And I'm pretty sure Gatlin won't make that mistake. So I'd say that 
Elliot Daly and Billy Vanapola are in serious doubt and people like Farrell, Itoji and George have got credit in the bank. So uh, there, there is some interesting selections there for Gatlin, for yeah. sure. I, th- I think the, the problem that, that those players have, Lawrence, is, is that playing well, even against the best, the second best team in the championship, doesn't prove enough. I mean, Elliot Daly <coughs> found well, space. You say, yeah, but you say that, but Wales, Wales have got a model where once they bring their players in camp, I mean, Wales don't perform in the, in the Champions Cup, and yet they, at international level, they're able to perform. So Gatland, along with uh, Paul Stridgen, the fitness coach, you know, has got a formula where he can coax the bet. You know, he can get those players up to where they need to be, both physically and mentally, to perform. So I, I'm not, I'm not concerned. You know, we, we we have a go at our players when they don't perform, but but all the Welsh squad players, you know, they don't play brilliantly in in, in the big games uh, for for their clubs, and yet they're able to play brilliantly for their country. So I don't think it, it's. All, you always have to follow the same formula. And Gatlin knows how to get the best out of players, particularly in, in physically and, and, and more importantly, mentally as well. Yeah, no, I agree. All I meant was if you are an Elliot Daly or a Billy Vunipola and you're trying to earn a spot, it's harder to do it because a good performance against Ealing or Ampthill doesn't mm. carry the same weight. Stuart, um, just a final say, uh, we know that Eddie Jones is very sniffy towards Premiership. Probably too sniffy because he uses it as an excuse. But we've already spoken this morning about, about Saracens coming back. We know that Leicester and Northampton are at least on their way. Quinns and London Irish uh, were very close on the weekend. Are we looking possibly to uh, next season, one of the most powerful uh, pre- Premierships? Because it looks to me like a lot of the clubs are now, are now improving. Well, they are, Steve, but I think they're improving from a pretty low base. Take extra and Saracens out of the equation, and the reality is we've fallen a long way behind the French League. Our standards have been low. It's entertaining, it's exciting, and one of the reasons is, I think, belatedly, we're working on things like offloading, we're working on our support lines, and it's not just one great big dog turd of breakdown after breakdown, which the Premiership had become. There are less rucks. It is a speedier game. A speedier game makes it a little bit nearer to being international uh, in its intensity. I have not much sympathy for Eddie Jones about much, but I actually think he's right when you look at the Premiership and Jones says there's a massive difference. I believe there is. I still think Bristol are a highlights package team. Um, They're lovely to watch, but I think Exeter are miles clear this year as the only English team anywhere near an international intensity. So I have a bit of sympathy for Eddie Jones, but I do think that the Premiership is showing great signs of improvement. But, you know, there's still, you know, there's ambition, but where there's ambition, there's not always accuracy. It makes for thrilling rugby, but not test much rugby yet. Lawrence, uh, I've loved the, the last few weeks of the Premiership. Is Stuart, is that fair enough for Stuart, or do you think there's there's something a little bit more serious happening there? There are a lot of people that kind of quite like the the, the problems that Saracens are going through, but actually, I think they're they're they're, they're a huge loss to the Premiership. You know, in terms of their quality. I mean, when you've got half the international team not playing in the Premiership, you know, and some of the biggest stars of the game in this country, it is a huge loss. So, uh, you know, the sooner they get back to where they 
belong, the better, really, quite frankly. So I think that's that, that's one for sure, because I think they right, are up there. I think with Bristol, I don't think anyone would, argue, and Pat Lamb would, would say that they're not the finished article. They've come a long, long way in a, in a, in a relatively short space of time. They've, they've, you know, they've won a trophy and they're getting better. You know, they've got stardust in their team. They've got some, some, some players that, that week in, week out are, are really playing very, very well. So I think they're, they're on a journey. I hate using that word, but they are on a journey. And but it, but it's a, it's an upward curve, and and I think they will get better. But I do agree with Barnsley that they have got a, a way to go. And that that game at the weekend just 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 reminded everyone that you know that, that there's certain ways to win. You know, high intensity games of rugby, and and there's a naivety still with Bristol um, in terms of uh, or in terms of the way that they play. But it's a beautiful naivety because when you've got people like Charles Piertow in your team, why shouldn't you have the confidence to run out of your own 22 and, and, and score a try, which is exactly what they did. But the problem is in the big games, you've got to select when when to do that and when not to. And I think Bristol too often select you know the wrong options, particularly against good sides that just shut them down. So, yeah, look, there, there is a lot to behold in the Premiership, but um, I'm still confused with the with the English club model. Even after 26 years of professional rugby, can't quite work out what everyone's trying to do because you've got 12 teams. Don't think there's enough quality spread. I mean, I think the quality spread too thinly. If I'm honest, I'd love a, a radical draft pick, you know, in in uh, or a draft system in club rugby where we could um, make sure that the uh, the quality spread out across the league. Um, there's talk about the Premiership moving to um, 14 teams in the near future, never mind the uh, ESL. I think rugby's got, you know, drifting into problems of its own around promotion and relegation. I don't I still can't understand how they think they can have 24 rounds of premiership games, nine weekends of European rugby and uh, 10 test matches in the same calendar year um, and expect to get our, the best out of our players. So I think there's still a lot of head scratching for, for the premiership to do. I think the communications, as been mentioned earlier on, is at an all-time low the, the relationship between the clubs and its and its and its principal partner, I don't think it's ever been um, as as uh, as bad. In the words of Chris Jones, our you know guest on 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 the ruck, PRL's kind of messaging is don't tell anyone about anything, no matter how important it is. So I think the Premiership's got a long way to go. But if if you've got the right people around the table, mm-hmm. uh, I think it could get there a lot quicker than it has in the last twelve months. That's for sure. Alex, uh, we'll put you on the spot. If you succeeded, the man who never was. Uh, I went into uh, uh, t- t- and took charge. Where would you be looking? Fourteen clubs, uh, the end of relegation, the, or would you enshrine relegation? What's your personal? What was your personal shape of the league? That, I mean, that, that's an enormous question, and, and it's something that I was just thinking about there. You're an enormous <laughs> authority. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get slightly slimmer, but um, your your point about next season being, uh, you know, the most powerful. I think the decision that gets made about promotion and relegation for next season will have a massive impact on that if relegation comes back next season you have those you have all 13 teams in the in the league then then you have the bottom third fighting for for, for safety they'll have there'll be a jeopardy there and you won't have teams cruising from mid-season as we've had this season and and I, I understand and I was behind the, the the reason for ring fencing this season I understood it I think that's a massive policy decision that the Premiership have, have to come to my personal view is I think I think having having a conference system splitting it into two, having fewer matches, but making each match an event is massive. I think there are too many premiership games that drift by and no one pays any attention, that they don't mean enough. You have to create, and this is where the CVC influence comes in, and it borrows from other sports around the world, American football, for example. You have to make each game an event. 
you know that has to be that has to be a rarity factor that drives people to into the stadiums that demands people watch it on television and as Lawrence says there's so many games that you can just pick up highlights and you can move on it's a bit like one day one day cricket or, or 2020 cricket there's so much of it that, that there's no appointment to view and I think that's where the, the club game really needs to, to, to stop and, and look at its structure whether it's two conferences of seven and then and then a playoff system um, thought process I would bring in if I took over Premiership Rugby would be to create big events, engage the public much better in in stadium than they do now. The screens aren't good enough, for example. You should every fan should be given a ref link on the way in so they understand what's happening because the television coverage, as as Lawrence knows because he's part of it, is so good. Television coverage is so good that there's an argument that you get a better experience watching it from home. And the club game needs to fight against that. They need to drive people back into the ground, drive people to watch on television. And that means creating a, a, a an appointment to view product and, and having too many games works against that. Don't keep saying this thing about not going to the games because there'll be accountants on the sixth floor listening to this podcast. They might ask us to do everything at home. Okay, uh, that's the end of a uh, uh, great chat about the Premiership and uh, a little bit more stick for the man who never was, Darren Charles. I don't think uh, any... I think all of you were working elsewhere on the weekend, lads. There was... Uh, England took the Grand Slam against France at the Stoop, their third uh, championship on the trot. Uh, a very tight game in what has actually been a woefully one-sided series of matches. I just wonder what you thought, what they do now. It's very... Easy to follow the Six Nations model, keep the same six teams. But is it any good if uh, you know you're going to win a game and you were almost certainly bound to win it by more than 50 points, which when the two professional sides play the other, is all, the others is almost a guarantee. It's self-defeating for the other teams who get hammered. They're better off playing each other and having a lower level, lower quality league until they build their games. England and France are better playing off each other in an epic series every year. That's not to say in five years' time that Wales or Ireland may, may have risen or England and France may have fallen. But at the moment, it just seems pointless. And I know we all want to think the best of it, but it's not a great tournament because England and France are so far clear. Lawrence, uh, we, we, is that is that fair enough? There's no point in keeping the old structure if it's going to be an embarrassment. We've tried to follow the, the, the Six Nations, which is understandable. But the, like you say, the, the, the chasm of, of quality between you know England and France and, and the rest is, is is just too big, too great. So there's no reason why the women's game needs to follow the men's game in terms of its structure. They've got the opportunity. Uh, the game is not you know is, is is not necessarily big enough yet, but it is. We, we have to listen to what to what people are wanting. You know, it's the fastest growing sport, women's rugby in the world. You know, the participation levels across the world are going up massively. So, you know, it's it's here. You know, let's grow it in the right way. You know, England have this crazy situation where they've just won the Six Nations title against France. And who are they playing next week? France, uh, in a friendly. Um, uh, so, albeit a different challenge for them uh, because they've got to go to France to play them. So, yeah, look, we're going to get back to that club v country argument. Who owns the women's game? Is it is it international rugby or is it club rugby? You know, and, um, I know that Wasp, uh, you know, are very keen to to invest much more money in the women's team. Um, our current wage bill is one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So, uh, there is a big gap, and uh, and that and someone needs to invest in that gap. Um, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what direction of, you know it goes over the next few years. And some personal thoughts. Um, first of all, there were three games on, on the on the final day. 
all of them were relatively close, which was which was good. And the final order was England, France, uh, followed by Ireland, Italy, Wales. Sorry, Ireland, Italy, Scotland, and Wales. And you could tell the the cavernous gap because actually Wales in the third game scored their first points of any sort against against Scotland. At least they were pretty competitive, but it, it's now split really into three divisions and with only six teams that 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 is a struggle it's very difficult for england and france to play at their best when they've been beating teams by 50 points you get into bad habits um so it it, it was not it, it was a showpiece occasion but it wasn't a showpiece game in my opinion this england side has got a lot of promise um helena roland seems to be settling in at fly half but they are categorically not yet in the same class as the 2014 team which won the title nor are they in the same class remotely as the 2017 team which were which lost in the final to New Zealand so they've got a long road to travel and they are now in desperate need of real tough fixtures Steve you've you've covered women's rugby for for decades it it feels to me and I've I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. That the, the, the sport has now reached a point where it's it's strong enough to to break out on its own. It doesn't have to live in the shadow of the men's sport. So, for example, when when the Lions announced a feasibility study into a women's Lions team, and there was conversations, you know, oh, maybe there could be a joint tour of Australia uh, in 2025. And I'm thinking, well, why would the women's Lions team want to go to Australia? Because the power, the the power tour there would be to go to North America or or to tour France. Absolutely, I think they've had it. I think I think you're right, and they've had enough of being told what they should be doing by sort of middle-aged blokes wearing blazers. I think they just want to do it on their own, and they're quite right because maybe they could even come up with something that the, the the men's game could copy. It's ridiculous following everybody, and they need they now need some administrators, women administrators and coaches, to come through strongly to give them their own voice. It's about time they were not uh, completely held sheltering under the men's umbrella. It's as simple as that. And incidentally, on the boom in players, there's a colossal boom at uh, Maidenhead, where I believe that the fine level of coaching is uh, attracting women from all over the south of England. We now move on to the highlights of the week, our god or goddess of the week. Uh, We'll start with you, Alex, please. I can't look at it. I mean, I was looking through the... I watched the England women's game. I think I know Sarah Hunter didn't didn't play as much as she would have liked, but she's an, an extraordinary captain. But my pick would be Zoe Allcroft, player of the match in, in the final. Um, I thought she's she'd had a a really uh, superb championship. So she's my pick for goddess of the week. Queen Zoe is the start. Lawrence. Well, there's so many to choose from. I mean, you've got performance of you know individual brilliance of Louis Louis Rizamet. Um I thought Sam Simmons, Slade, and Jack Noel could easily. Be up there in terms of their performances. Dan Bigger, as, as Barnsley's mentioned, mm. heroically courageous. But um, there is only one choice really for the God of the Week. Um, he was the uh, sports writer since 2003 when he graduated from the Press Association training scheme. Spent two years working in Australia, but he's now the deputy rugby correspondent for the Times. Uh, and my God of the Week for his outstanding work, clocking in and then clocking out, clocking in on a Monday and clocking out only last night. The God of the Week is Alex Lowe. There are very <laughs> few people who would disagree with that, really, honestly. When uh, when your um, your uh, closest colleague buzzes off and is not seen for six weeks, someone has got to pull in the slack. Stuart? 
Well, I am known to pray at the Church of Lowe. I don't deny that, but I'm going to blaspheme and I'm going to go for bigger. The man who put others ahead of himself in this age of ego, Dan Bigger, is my God of the Week. Very good. Very good. I think, actually, I, I, I'm going to discard all my options um, because they don't uh, measure up in any way to Lawrence's choice. And I think for the first time, the goddess of the week is Alex Lowe, uh, one of our very own. Why should we? Uh, I mean, the RFU review themselves and mark themselves. So why shouldn't we honour our own? I'm not happy about something. I want to be transparent on the Alex Lowe thing. <laughs> OK. In any difficult choice, there are always dissenters. Stuart, have you got a problem with uh, having uh, Alex Arthur Lowe as um, Goddess of the Week? Well, I have, Steve, because I'd like to follow in the RFU's footsteps and, and maintain a degree of transparency. I don't want anyone to know what I've been saying. In fact, I'd like my voice to be muffled so they don't know I suggested Dan Bigger. Right, OK, that's fair enough. So you want to stay a, a shadowy figure? Anonymous, yes, yes. Anonymous, OK. Well, that was Stuart Barnes there, just being anonymous. Just one more point um, about how on the spot and informed we are. This morning I listened to part of another podcast where some clown talking on it was uh, described as having his finger on the spot and reporting from the heart of the game. I'd never, ever seen him before or heard of him. So don't forget, matches these days are attended by no one except a few hardened journalists and broadcasters, and only a few of us are invited onto major Zoom press conferences. This is practically the only pod where panellists have actually been at the game and talked to the key people. So when you hear unknown saying they're the only men on the spot, you should treat them with the derision they deserve. Uh, they're guessing what is really happening, and our panel today was telling you, with our fingers on the temperature, what did happen. Thank you. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 